If you'll grab your Bibles this morning, we'll turn open to the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 22 this morning, Matthew 22, and we're looking at verses 15 through 22 this morning, Matthew chapter 22. And before we open God's Word together this morning, let's pray a prayer of illumination for Him to sow His truth upon our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray on this Christmas Sunday morning that you would speak to us in that still small voice. We pray that it would thunder in our minds and thunder in our hearts. So that when we leave this place, that we would know that we have encountered you, our living God. We find you in the Son and the Spirit our one triune God, more beautiful as a result of our time together. May we find you near. May we find you blessing us and speaking directly to each one of us as we have need, so that when we leave this place, we may say, indeed, we have met with the living God this morning. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ, born for us sinners. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22, this is the holy and errant word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And look at the grass withers, and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, happy Christmas Sunday to you again. Uh, I love Christmas Sunday. Uh, I love especially that I get to spend Christmas Sunday with the church that I love and that we get to gather together. Most importantly, I love this Sunday because we're reminded yet again that We sinners, a way has been made for us in Christ and that we can be united together before His throne and do what we're doing here this morning uh, and worship Him. And I want to look at that from this text here in Matthew 22 this morning. As I told you last week, I decided just to keep going through the Gospel of Matthew even though we've entered into this Christmas season. And so we're just in the next passage, so we're going to take a look at, at this passage. 
The scene is this, is that we are most likely in Passion Week. So actually on the very other end of the spectrum from what you and I are celebrating this morning. This is Passion Week in the life of Jesus. This is most likely the Tuesday before the Friday that Christ would be crucified upon the tree. And they are gathered there in the temple. And as they are in the temple, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees sent some of their disciples and they sent the Herodians to Jesus, or as Matthew says, to entrap Jesus. And it is a little fascinating because the Pharisees and the Herodians, they would have been natural enemies of one another and would have been adversaries. When you think Pharisees, you think these spiritual elites that at least through their lens, they wanted to see the nation of Israel be conformed to their spiritual standard of how they interpreted the law of God. And then you had the Herodians. You can tell by their very name or committed more to the secular realm. They were committed to the Herods, these secular elites that Rome had put upon the throne of Israel to rule over the, peace, the people of Israel. And so you had these two natural adversaries, the Pharisees and the Herodians, being united together. It kind of brings home that, that proverb, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And here you see it exemplified. And so the Pharisees send some of their disciples with the Herodians to entrap Jesus in our text. And our text is the exchange between Jesus and these aligned adversaries. I want to look at this passage this morning with three points, and then I'm going to give you a few applications. Our first point is this. First, let us recognize that enemies of Christ will often reflect what they are not. That enemies of Christ will often reflect what they are not. These hypocrites, as Jesus will call them, they come to him with all kinds of flattery. They call him teacher, and they compliment him, saying, we know that you are true. English doesn't have a word for that there. We don't usually refer to someone as true, but you, you understand the intended meaning. Jesus is trustworthy. He is true to his word. What he says is honest. He is a man of character. And yet, these Herodians and these disciples of the Pharisees, they don't believe him. They say, look, Jesus, we know of you that you are true, that you're not swayed by anyone that is before you. It doesn't matter whose company you are in. You say what is true. He cannot say anything untrue or even slightly true, and yet they show their hypocrisy and that they do not believe him. They're flatterers, they're deceivers. J.C. Ryle, when he is commenting upon this passage, says about this, he says, Satan is never so dangerous as when he appears as an angel of light. And the world is never so dangerous as when it smiles. And that's true. We often become most exercised when there is some kind of demonstrative attack upon the church where we can see it and Yet all the while, we haven't been exercised when the church has been under attack all along, and even more so when we were enjoying the world, cozying up to the church, and we were slowly conforming to its likeness. I remember 20-some years ago, when I had first come to Christ, it was one of the first controversies I found myself in as a Christian. And 
Remember, at that time, Walmart had brazenly decided to change their advertisements instead of for Christmas to call it Xmas. And I remember Christians at the time being absolutely exercised. They're attacking the church. Well, maybe. But how about the attack of materialism that Walmart had helped to usher into all of our lives with smiling greeters at the doors? And no one balked at that. It is so much more deadly. We'll see it from the beginning of Jesus' life to the very end of Jesus' life that his adversaries will often reflect what they are not. At the very beginning of his life, you will have Herod, this king, who says to the Magi, tell me where you find this Messiah born into the world because I want to go and worship him. When all along he wants to go and kill him. And then at the very end of Jesus' life, it will be closed out with Judas betraying him. And how does he betray him? He betrays him with a kiss. And yet, all these enemies from Herod to Judas and all between and to the modern day examples are on a fool's errand. It's just a fool's errand. The psalmist points that out in Psalm 2. He speaks about all the rulers of the earth and how they come together and they plot and they plan to overcome the Lord's anointed and the Lord. And, and the psalmist says the Lord just sits enthroned on high and he laughs. It's a laugh of derision. Because all of their plotting and all of their scheming and all of their planning, it's just a fool's errand. Christ knows all. He sees all. And He continues to reign. It can't be undone. So second, let us notice in this passage that though the enemies of Christ often reflect what they are not, Jesus always reflects who He is. Jesus always reflects who He is. Now, there are times where Jesus will shroud Himself. You remember the time on the Emmaus Road with the disciples where they are walking with Jesus and they don't know that it is He that is speaking to them until later. Or you think of Philippians 2 where Paul will write to the Philippian church and it will say that when the Son of God became flesh, when He entered into His creation, that the Son of God, when He became in the likeness of men, that He emptied Himself. He's speaking of Jesus shrouding His glory. That is, that those He mixed with here on earth could not see His heavenly glory. And yet, He never ceases to be what He is. And He never pretends to be anything He isn't. Jesus is always true. And the Herodians, they point this out. They say, we know that you are true. You teach the way of God truthfully. Jesus, if we could say it this way, is the truthiest truth there is. There's nothing more true than Jesus. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the truthiest truth there is. There is nothing more dependable that you can put your life upon, that you can lay it upon, or what you hear from Jesus. He is always true in what He speaks. Always. I've heard in recent months the regular refrain, I'll trust the science, trust the science. And I know what people mean. I'm thankful for science. I'm thankful that many of you have invested your lives in the study of science. And 
I believe much science and a lot of science. But it seems to me that science has risen in our culture's estimation as if it is the determiner of truth. Science doesn't determine truth. Science itself is aimed at discovering truth. Science by its very nature is always changing and growing and correcting as it experiments. The phrase, trust the science, it's malleable. Whose science? What science? What science win? But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not malleable. What he says is true and everlastingly true. What he is is the same forever. You can put your life upon him and it's fixed. It doesn't shake and rattle. It doesn't change. Even his enemies seeking to trap him can't help but notice his authoritative hold on truth. He reflects who he is. And we see that in the answer that he gives to their question in the text. They ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful to pay this tax to Caesar or not? And here is a very practical question with great theological implications that every Jew would have wanted to know the answer to. Is this lawful to pay this tax to Caesar? Now, there were two main issues with this tax that was to be paid to Caesar. The first is a right and proper concern that these Jews had with blasphemy of God and with false worship of God. And if God's people are to be concerned about anything, surely it is to be with the worship of God. The coins that this tax was paid with contained an image. There was an image on one side, and then there was an inscription underneath that image. And then on the reverse side, there was another inscription. The image was of the Caesar, the Caesar of that time, Tiberius. And the phrase, the inscription underneath, the image of Tiberius on this coin read this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. This was a not-so-subtle way of asserting the divinity of the Caesars and that the people of Rome, were the Roman Empire, were to worship the Caesars. You have to remember, Rome has conquered a, a disparate people, and so there has to be some way to unite all of these conquered people. And one of the main glues that they used to unite all of these conquered people was to encourage them all and even force them all to worship the Caesars as divine. The opposite side of the coin was another phrase. And that phrase was Pontifex Maximus, which every Jew, including Jesus, would have translated as high priest. And so, here's the question. Could a Jew use such a coin in good faith? Weren't they bowing the knee to Rome? And weren't they giving what was only God's due to these Caesars of Rome by using such a coin to pay the tax? And weren't they encouraging false worship? Wasn't this compromise 
and not giving God His due. A second reason for the question, maybe even more significant to the vast majority of Jews that would have been at that scene with Jesus and His disciples and these disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, was the offense of this tax. Now look, any tax can be offensive, but this one was especially offensive. If there was one thing that united all the Jews, it was that they all absolutely hated this tax. There were other taxes that the Romans caused the Jews to pay that the Jews saw some benefit from, but this was a poll tax. And this tax was simply a kind of tax to enforce upon the Jews that you know what, you are a conquered people and you belong to us and all this tax does is fill the coffers of Rome. And so they despise this tax from the lowest Jew to the aristocracy in the Jews, from the zealots to the Pharisees, they all agreed that they hated this tax and despised this tax. Again, it wasn't so much because the tax was burdensome in payment. It was only a denarius. It was only a, a day's labor for someone, a wage that they would have been paid. It didn't cost so much in coin, but it cost in humiliation. And that was the rub. And that's what they hated. So, the question is political. The question is theological. Imagine if Poland had showed up here in the United States and conquered us and they imposed a tax upon all of us and we had to pay that tax just for the privilege of having been conquered by Poland. It would rub against you. Do we pay this Jesus? That's the question. Theological, political, these enemies seem to have arranged a question that is a lose-lose for Jesus. You can't answer this one and win. You see, if he answered that they should pay the tax, then he would discredit himself in the eyes of all of the Jews. Because surely the Christ to come, the Messiah, as we are celebrating today, that would come into the world and that would establish His kingdom, what He would do is throw off the yoke of the Romans, and surely the very first thing that He would do is get rid of this tax. It would be a sign of it. But, if Jesus answers that it's improper to pay the tax, and he sets himself up as an enemy of the Romans, and they would consider him an insurrectionist leader. And there's some history going on in the background here, just 30 years prior, so when Jesus is just a little boy, and he would have known of it, all the Jews would have known of it. There was a man that has come to be called by us in history as Judas of Galilee, who had risen up in rebellion against Rome and led an insurrection against Rome over this very tax. Because he said, this is blasphemous. It doesn't give God his due. We can't use this tax. We can't give this tax. We have to rebel against this. And the Romans crushed him with authority. But Jesus, he's not troubled by their question. He clearly reflects who He is. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. He has all authority. 
He was, as Matthew says, aware of their malice, and he rightly tells them the truth about themselves. He says, you are hypocrites. They reflect what they are not, but he reflects who he is, and it's on absolute bright display in this passage. Jesus asked for a coin, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And the answer is clear. Everyone knows that's Caesar's likeness. And that's Caesar's inscription. Jesus then answers their question, but when he does so, he changes a word that they had used. When they asked their question of Jesus, they asked, is it lawful to pay? That word to pay could be the idea to, to give. Is it lawful to give this text to Caesar? And Jesus changes that word to render. He says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and render to God's what is God's. And render has the idea of giving payment that is due. This is what's due. Give what is due to Caesar and give what is due to God. And they marveled. And they walked away in silence. Jesus has a way of doing that, making people marvel. Our third and final point this morning, we are to reflect who we are. We are to reflect who we are. As Herodians and disciples, these enemies of Christ didn't reflect who they are, and they often don't. Jesus always reflects who He is, and we should reflect who we are. Who are you? And what are you to reflect? We live as pilgrims in this world. God has ordained authorities to rule in this world. He has set princes in their places, and so we render to princes their due in the secular realm. It's not necessarily because we respect the person or even how they exercise the office or whether they rightfully should be fulfilling their office, but rather because they are indeed the authority. So we render what is due. But what I want to focus on is what Jesus in particular highlights in the second clause and what his enemies are marveling at. The brilliance of Jesus' answer is found in that second clause. And it's there that you and I can run to and we can begin to understand what is it that I am to be? What is it that I am to reflect? Who am I? Let's close. Render to God the things that are God's. And that clause governs the first clause. Jesus puts even our obedience to the state in the context of our obedience to God. How? Any Jew, and this is why they walked away marveled, they understood. Any Jew would have immediately had their mind run to Genesis chapter 1. And they would have remembered those very familiar words. In that sixth day of creation, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. The coin bears Caesar's image. Surrender to Caesar what is Caesar's. You bear God's image. So you render to God what is God's. You're created 
in His image. And so you are to reflect that image. And you're to give God His due. What does that mean for you and I? Three quick summary applications on this Christmas Sunday as we try and work this out in light of the birth of Christ. First, know and live as one who has worth and meaning and purpose. Know and live as one who has worth and meaning and purpose. Some of you, no doubt, in a room this size, in a room over there that size, and online, woke up this morning and you felt like, I have no more worth than a bag of flour. Especially in a 2020, where you've gone through all these things that we have been through. And yet, I ask you, what makes and gives you worth? It's not what you do. It's not what you practice. It's not how you feel. It's surely not how you look. It's what you are intrinsically. It's who you are intrinsically. The Roman coin that was pulled out had worth. Why? Because of the imprint upon it. It was created with worth. Today you could mold copper and you could mold together nickel into the shape of a, of a dime. You could even make sure that it was 91.67% copper and 8.33% nickel. It could say liberty on it. You could put liberty on it. You could even put a little D on there to stand for Denver. But if you put my face on there instead of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's face on there, it would be worth nothing. Why? Because its worth is tied to the image that's imprinted upon it. It was created with the purpose of being worth 10 cents with that image upon it. You were created in the image of God. It's imprinted upon every single one of your souls. You have intrinsic worth. Intrinsic, eternal worth. Every single one of you. Now, we are not what we were created to be in the image of God. There are parts of the image of God in us, markers of it that have been obliterated, some that have been marred. But the image of God is still there. Created in the image of God. And that means you exist for a purpose. You have meaning. I've sat with people from junior hires to some seniors on their deathbed in the hospital or in a retirement center. And I've heard the same statement made on both ends of the spectrum and some in between. I don't know why I'm still alive. And my answer is always the same. I know. I know. You're still alive because you exist for His glory. There's still worship that He desires from you in this life. You have a purpose. 
That leads to our second summary application. Recognize you exist for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. Here's a wake-up call on this Christmas Sunday morning that we all need. You're not the reason. You're not the purpose. Your life doesn't exist for you. You exist for Him. For Him. As an image bearer, we are signs, as Augustine would say. If you see your image in a mirror, that image is a sign of you. We're a sign. God is the thing itself. Images are always secondary, following after the main thing. My friends, we are not the main thing. He is. And all of us, every single one of us, derives our purpose and our meaning upon the thing that we are derived from. We have intrinsic, eternal worth, but it is all tied to Him who has infinite, eternal worth. You have intrinsic worth because you are an image of Him who has eternal, infinite worth. You are created in His image. To be bearers of His image. You exist for Him, for His glory. And so you render to God what is God's. And what is God's? You. All that you are. Your mind, your heart, your will, your affections, your tongue, your hands, your feet, your talents, your gifts, your dreams, your hopes, your life. That's why Paul can say in Romans 12 to us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your entire life to Him. That's why he can write in 1 Corinthians I don't, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your whole life rendered to Him. Give God His due. Until you find your worth and your purpose and your meaning in Him, all of it, you will find yourself on a fool's errand, just like these enemies that come to Him. Augustine famously said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. And that is true. Third, especially during this Christmas season, consider your worth to Him. I want you to consider your worth to Him. That you could be a restored worshiper came at a great price. I love Christmas. I love Christmas Sunday. I love because it, it brings to our mind afresh and anew that the, the Son of God came into this world and that He lived and He died and He was resurrected on the third day and that He ascended to heaven and all of that for sinners. And, and the question I would ask you is, it, when you think about Christmas, if you were trying to get at the very root of Christmas, why is it that He came to do that? What's the reason? Why, why was the Son of God born into this world to live and to die and to be buried and to be resurrected? What's the root of Christmas? What's the foundational cause? I would answer that it is for God 
purchase restored worship so that he could purchase and restore worship. That he could make you and I into what we were always meant to be, a, a full-hearted, full-throated, full-affection-stirred, full-souled and spirited bodily being that ascribes Him the glory that is due His name, as the psalmist says, so that God would receive His due. He finds you that worthy that he's willing to send his son into the world. We were created to worship this king. Lloyd-Jones once said, the essence of sin is that we do not live entirely to the glory of God. Sin corrupts our reason for being, so God redeems us from sin to his glory so that we can worship this king of kings. We were created for that purpose. You and I will worship something or someone. One theologian has spoken about it often and and regularly, saying that the consistent issue for people is wrong God, not no God. We can't help ourselves. We're created to be worshipers. As water can't help itself but be wet, we can't help but be worshipers. That's just who we are. But sin steals our affections and it steals God's glory. And so truth and love and peace and joy and grace and mercy and peace, they all get replaced with arrogance and pride and selfishness and harshness and envy and hatred and destruction and disease. And and so... The Father sends His Son because He finds that we have intrinsic worth. And He desires our worship still. And so He sends the Son into this world so that you and I might be free from sin. Why? Ultimately, so we might render to Him His due. It's no mistake that as we find the shepherds in the field, as it was read this morning at the very beginning of the advent of Christ, that they erupt in praising the glory of God when they hear the good news. It's no mistake that when the magi from the east, those kings, come before Jesus and find Him in the manger, that what do they do? They bow down and they worship Him. It's no mistake that when we look at the saints in heaven in Revelation, what are they doing? They are singing before the throne of this Lamb that was slain for them. They're being what they were created to be. Worshippers. And giving God His due. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, that It is quite the reversal that we find in the gospel. If you and I that were created in the image of God to reflect His image, and yet because of sin that image is fallen and that image is marred and in some ways obliterated, 
And so the Father sends the Son into this world in our likeness. Dare we even say in our image? So that we might have that image of God fully restored in us so that we might reflect back His glory for all of eternity. The Son who is infinite becomes finite, the eternal. Enters into His creation, the Creator into the creation. The invisible becomes visible because the Father sees intrinsic worth here and He knows that He is worthy of worship and praise that would come forth from here. And so He restores what sin took away so that we might render Him His due. That we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice before His throne for all of eternity, singing His praise with all of the angels and the archangels and reflecting His glory day after day after day for all of eternity. You were created to be a worshiper and you were recreated to be a worshiper and you will be resurrected to be a worshiper. Isaiah 9, we hear this prophecy of His birth. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he's done it. He's done it. Christ has been born. Christ has been born so that you might live for Him. He was born so that you might live for Him today. And so you might live for Him for eternity. That's why He was born. Render to God what is God's. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, forgive us that our tiny worlds so often center upon ourselves. Oh, thank you for taking sinners such as us and calling us to come to your Son who was born so that we might truly live. We might have life and have it abundantly that we might live to your praise and glory here and for all of eternity. Oh, Christ has been born. We give you praise. And he lives. We give you praise. And we do so with all of our life. For you are truly worthy, worthy indeed. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.